electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, big rally to kick off Q4's first week of tech earnings is now the time to get bullish. Finally, we're going to talk about it. Plus, developers, 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 developers. Clippers chairman Steve Ballmer out with a new bet on direct-to-consumer. We're going to talk to the man himself in just a moment. And finally, Cloudflare surging while Fox slumps. Today's tech movers all hour. D. Yeah, Nasdaq, of course, seeing a big rebound this morning as the volatility continues. Growth names, Kathy Woods Arc jumping some 6%. There's only a few names in the red on the Nasdaq 100 at the moment. So, Mike Santoli, are there legs to the rally here? That is the key question. So far, not a ton of enthusiasm for the previous ones. What about today's? Yeah, dude. Well, we've obviously been conditioned to have a little bit of skepticism about any of these quick rallies. Although the market making the case that last Thursday's reversal from those morning lows and with the dramatic uh, kind of gain into the close maybe had some significance. There's some longer term sort of trend uh, average price levels that people have been watching uh, that actually are right in the vicinity of where the market is right now. I'm going to just draw roughly where it is. That's a thousand day uh, moving average. It's kind of 200 weeks. It's almost four years. Uh, We didn't even undercut it in the Nasdaq 100 at the lows back in uh, March of 2020. But you do kind of hover here. Also, you're kind of in this zone right there. 10,000. It's the initial burst off the lows uh, from the COVID crash. That's kind of where we're hanging out right now. And it mimics uh, in an amplified way, as I always say, what the broader market is up to. Now, more tactically, there's perhaps a little bit of hope in there. If you look at the way that uh, dealers are positioned in NASDAQ 100 futures. Now, dealers are considered a little more of a smart money indicator because they're essentially taking the other side of the crowd and the big speculative uh, funds when they uh, kind of position in futures. And you see here, this is from Renaissance Macro. Uh, That's about the 90th percentile of how long they are, NASDAQ 100 futures. Now, it's not always an automatic thing that the market is bottomed in those areas, but it tends to coincide when the risk reward is looking a little bit better because everybody else in terms of the public has already been betting so heavily against the NASDAQ 100 that they uh, kind of by default end up being the ones owning more. So they're slower moving commercial hedgers is another word uh, for these dealers, guys. Mike, how would you characterize the stocks that are reacting the most so far? I mean, it seems interesting to me. Netflix is up about five and a half. Microsoft is up a little better than three, but Apple is up less than two percent. Bitcoin bouncing back. I mean, it seems like maybe some of the riskier names um, are are particularly right. Apple's underperforming the S&P at the moment, it seems like. Right. So the so Apple, you know, it almost seems as if it's a little bit counter trend. It's taken on this character of being kind of stuff you reach for when you're scared of everything else. Uh, And so that's why it might not be reacting as much now. And of course, it's not as far off its highs as most of the other big, you know, Fang Plus type names. I would argue that's what's really happening here. You do see an element of, uh, of not just short covering, but stocks that basically have been really cast aside 
they get scooped up on a day like today. So you don't want to really extrapolate too much of a story from it, but it does seem as if the things that are spring-loaded the most, highest valuations, biggest kind of change, biggest gap between uh, what people think they ultimately could be and how the stocks have been treated, that's where uh, you're seeing most of the dramatic moves. Mike, appreciate it. A good way to start the hour. Quite a rally we got on hand. Uh, Mike Santoli. Let's turn to some big news in sports media today. More than 70 basketball games. Commentary from legends like Paul Pierce and Jamal Crawford. Broadcasts in Spanish and Korean. That's what's coming in the L.A. Clippers newly announced uh, D2C service Clipper Vision with the NBA season kicking off this week. Let's bring in Clipper, Clippers owner, chairman, former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer for a closer look. Steve, welcome back. Great to have you. Congratulations. Thanks, Carl. Real, real pleasure. It's a unique product and great to talk to you about it. I, I read this morning that you've been mulling some kind of DTC product since 2014. Can you just talk about the journey and how it's led you here today? Yeah, actually, if you go back far enough, even in my Microsoft days, I loved the idea of putting interactivity in sports, which meant putting things over the Internet. And when I bought the Clippers, I said, OK, we have some rights. How do, how do we go over the top? Now, it wasn't just about going over the top because we want to transform the viewing experience, but in a world of cord nevers, cord cutting, even uh, cable operators passing on carrying some games, we really want to make sure the broadest audience can get our games and they can see them in multiple unique ways, more interactivity, more options. Talk to me about how you uh, came down on pricing, because there's an environment right there where industry continues to grapple with what's the consumer able, willing to handle, uh, how do ads play in? What do you, how, how does the pricing speak to what the consumer, you think, how they feel about the team? Well, I think there, there's kind of two, th- two things, really. Number one, um, you know, what's the value? 200 you know, bucks a year, basically amounts to about three bucks a game. Uh, best season ticket you can buy in the house. Pretty good deal, if in my opinion. Uh, number two, we actually include a special, unique clipper jacket in there to try to bring things alive physically in addition to, to virtually. Steve, it's Deirdre. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Um, We spend so much of our time here on Tech Check talking about sports rights. It's become so interesting. And sort of the battle we're looking at now is Apple and the NFL and hearing talks or hearing reports that those talks may be stalled on what Apple and the NFL each want. So I wonder, how do you characterize your negotiations with Bally Sports, that is the regional sports partner? What was most important to them in in hammering out this deal? Well, I think the the key thing is since we were committed absolutely to have our own direct-to-consumer streaming product, the question is how could we work together? And we, with a lot of negotiation, had to work out a way to come to market in really four ways. Bally's has a direct streaming product. They're providing our stuff uh, on TV broadly. And we actually kept a a few games for over-the-air Uh, broadcast as well to get the broadest possible distribution. What were the keys? The keys came from a commitment by us to make sure we serve the market and then some cleverness in the business negotiations with Bally's. You know, if you ask going forward, how will things be distributed? The answer is I don't know. Will things be direct? Will they be distributed through tech companies? Will they be distributed Mm -hmm. through traditional 
cable networks. The most important thing, though, in what we're doing, and we're doing this in partnership with the NBA, is we're defining the experience of watching basketball. And there's just there's nobody who's going to do a better job and care about that more uh, than we are as a league. Steve, I wonder if you can give us some color around the financials, um, what they wanted, how important it was to them. Was it mostly, you know, what they were being paid to be able to get this over to you? And what do you think that means for the broader space? to sports rights just keep going up in value? Well, it was a combination. Essentially, they bought rights from us, and then we licensed back rights for our uh, streaming product, which is a very unique thing. Uh, as opposed to us licensing a subset of, of the rights. Complicated, tied up also in the NBA's deal with Bally's, since the NBA retains certain rights uh, for uh, streaming distribution. So quite complicated. Money flows quite complicated. But at the end of the day, I love the fact that we can go, go, go with this new experience direct-to-consumer and Bally's loves the fact that they can go to market with streaming, but particularly continue to keep us on television. Hey, Steve, it's good to see you. It's John Fort. Um, I, I noticed that you, when you're talking about the basketball viewing experience, you're talking about 2D content. You know, uh, I wonder how much you're thinking about NFTs and merchandising, how much you're thinking about the metaverse and 3D content. Are you anticipating or expecting that five or 10 years from now, people are gonna be wearing something on their face watching these games? And how much investment do you put toward being prepared for that? NFTs, no doubt. And once we have this platform in place, John, it becomes a whole lot easier because we have a direct relationship that goes beyond an anonymous relationship with our customers, a great marketing platform uh, for NFTs. Now, when it goes to you know, kind of 3D, et cetera. I think there will be two ways to consume. One is with glasses, and the glasses must get better. Uh, at Microsoft, we were working on these augmented reality product called HoloLens. They continue to work on it, obviously meta. But I also think there'll be ways for us to simulate 3D on the flat screen, much as, as uh, video games do that today, creating their own little metaverses. But if you say, hey, can I fly through the game? Can I say, okay, I'm going to you know, ride with Kawhi Leonard on this set of plays or Paul George and see what they see and see things in 3D, we're going to be able to do a pretty good job on that even before the broad uptake of glasses. At least I'm very confident about what I've seen from another, a number of the tech vendors. Okay, now let me ask you a question about the broader tech landscape, get away from sports for a moment. This is a moment when a lot of people are questioning where value really is when it comes to enterprise and enterprise software. Um, you know, uh, unprofitable, uh, innovative companies, how much are they worth? As a uh, technology watcher, uh, investor over time, what do you think are the most important principles and technologies over the next three to five years that despite you know, any near-term turbulence are worth investing in? Well, let me say, number one, uh, the companies that keep investing through this kind of bumpy period, those are the companies I really believe will come out stronger. You know, they say, you know, never wa waste a, a tough time. This is a tough time. 
companies should be, in my opinion, doubling down into that or at least staying steady. The second thing is, you know, there will be a whole set of innovation uh, around continuing around the cloud as new workloads move to the cloud. There will be innovation in uh, uh, how we use People like to say artificial intelligence, machine learning, to better anticipate what things people are going to be interested in. I'm not sure exactly where the metaverse and 3D will wind up in five years for enterprise software. Probably something, but I personally don't envision those scenarios. But the key is to keep consistent, to keep investing, to try to find those niche, those uh, experiences that are particularly satisfying. Those companies, the ones I believe in and am betting on, they'll be great. Not for, first and foremost, unsurprisingly, my old company, Microsoft. Steve, again, uh, sort of on the broad landscape, I, I, I wonder how you're thinking about this slow motion uh, divorce that we've seen between the U.S. and China, how it's going to affect tech, and whether or not you think it changes uh, the pace of innovation uh, between either side over the next 10 years. Yeah, it's a complicated thing from my perspective in the sense that I know some tech companies have great markets in China. Others do not have great markets in China. Certainly cloud companies have, have had a hard time. Some of the hardware companies, Apple and others, have had a great time. The way we do sourcing in China you know, presents complexity. I think the most important thing it means for the U.S., is to really double down on R&D investment, whether it's in renewables, whether it's in software, whether it's in hardware, and then think twice about uh, where manufacturing uh, will come in the future. Some of it will be in the U.S., others I'm sure will not. Uh, as a primary owner of a cloud company in Microsoft, Certainly, I, I don't see this problem with China creating uh, any particular financial drain. And finally, I, I don't know if we got specifically into baller vision, but, you know, we talk about these grand innovations that people have in their heads about how sports gets covered over the long term. But certainly people are making comparisons to Manning casts and this idea that you can be creative in the shorter term using tools that we have available today. Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, fantastic. Uh, in the case of basketball, this notion of something called Hooper Vision was first pioneered. But people get together and just kind of chat about the game or what's going on generally in basketball. I did my first Baller Vision uh, broadcast with uh, three former Clippers, Baron Davis, Jamal Crawford, and Paul Pierce. It's super fun to do. Super interesting. You could do from your living room. And whether it's celebrity guests, kids on our kids cast, uh, former ballers, of course, um, ballers meaning basketball players. I think it's <laughs> it's really can be pretty amusing. I kind of got a kick out of it. Now, I like being at games uh, and it's a little harder to focus in on the game. But, you know, I know I'll do a few more during the season. Uh, finally, Steve, I couldn't help but notice you sounded a little skeptical a few moments ago on the metaverse. And um, which vision are you skeptical of? Is it Meta and Mark Zuckerberg's? What do you buy into or not? Yeah, that's interesting that you heard just a shade of, of skepticism. <laughs> I'm not skeptical about the importance and concepts that we can get to through the metaverse. 
I am skeptical about some of the ways think people are thinking about the current implementation. If you can give me a meeting scenario where I can stroll around the room, really not just in a flat way, but really take a look at what's on people's faces, that makes sense. If you put a if you put you know sort of a 3D representation of me into a meeting and others, not sure in the short term that that's going to be as powerful. Obviously, the number one place we see metaverse today is in video games. And some of the things that you see, whether it's on Xbox or PlayStation or others, pretty amazing. So I don't want to sound totally skeptical, but particularly in the enterprise cases, it's going to take a little development, I think, Deirdre. Okay, fair enough. Steve, congratulations again uh, on Clipper Vision. We hope you'll come back uh, in the coming months, uh, talk about uptake. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks very much for the opportunity. And uh, it's been a while since I saw all of you. So thanks very much. Thanks, yeah, Steve. Good Steve to Ballmer. see you. Nobody's 3D avatar I'd rather talk to than their 2D actual self. Anyway, <laughs> shares of Fox and News Corp on the move after news that the companies are potentially exploring getting back together after splitting back in 2013. Julia Borston is here, literally. <laughs> I'm here, Welcome. not my avatar in the flesh. It's great <laughs> to be here, guys. And what's old is new again in media. Nearly a decade after splitting up his assets, Rupert Murdoch is working to recombine them, not dissimilar to CBS and Viacom's recombination into the company we now call Paramount. Now, since Fox sold its entertainment assets to Disney, Fox Corp's most valuable pieces are Fox News and Fox Sports. It has, of course, Sunday Football. Fox Broadcasting has struggled to launch some new hits, and it doesn't have a streaming service, instead relying on free ad-supported Tubi. Now, News Corp's digital subscription business and its digital real estate division have grown faster than expected. And as Fox Corp and News Corp have both established special board committees, they are now evaluating potential financial terms for a deal. It is likely to be an all-stock deal. Fox's market cap is around $16 billion. That stock is down 21% year-to-date, while News Corp is down 26%. That's a hair more than the S&P 500 declines. The Loop Capital downgrading both stocks this morning from buy to hold, saying they, quote, believe combining the entities would be a negative for the public shareholders of each company, saying we do not see material synergy in combining both companies, nor do we believe the larger scale will move the needle for either company. Credit Suisse downgrading Fox to neutral as well, noting that Fox is increasingly facing challenges, including growing advertising recession risk and cord cutting accelerating. Also noting that the merger would not resolve Fox's need for greater video streaming scale. But recombining the two would allow for cost cutting on corporate expenses and for better cross promotion across the platforms. But those synergies may not address the fact that both companies are trading at lower valuations relative to their peers, to the larger streaming players. Guys? Yeah, Julia, also when it comes to uh, potentially or actually buying things, Kanye West, <laughs> otherwise known as Ye, uh, buying Parler, right, the conservative social media site, which I had forgotten about completely. Um, is this? That's a point, right? You had forgotten about it until Kanye West gets involved. I mean, you know, Jay-Z bought, you know, uh, a music streaming site, 
you know, it, that, this that is different. I would not. I would not compare. I would not compare the two. This is very different. This is. Well, I don't think Jack Dorsey is going to step in and buy out Parler. No, look, I think that uh, I just would not compare Jay Z buying a music streaming site to Kanye West, or sorry, Yay, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, making a deal to buy Parler, and that's because he was kicked off of Instagram and Twitter. This was because he posted offensive, um, anti-Semitic things, and therefore is now trying to find a platform which will allow him to speak. So he made this deal. Of course, we have to say who knows whether it will actually close. We don't know the financial terms of the deal. But the fact is you did forget about it because we haven't talked about it that much since it was swept into this controversy about January 6th and what role it may have played in enabling mm -hmm. people to coordinate uh, storming the Capitol. So I think that's the real question here. Will it really happen? And then if Kanye West does take over this platform, what does it become? Does it actually make it more appealing um, or is it going to remain more of a niche service? Pete Davidson probably will not be joining Parler. That would be my guess. <laughs> of all the things that we don't know about, that I feel like I know. Good prediction. Yeah, Julia, thank you. Uh, still to come, why Starboard is going after Splunk, whether Apple's a buy here and what to expect from Netflix. Don't go away. Tech Check is just getting started. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Check out shares of Splunk. They are bouncing, though they are off the highs of the morning. On reports that activist investor Starboard has a stake just shy of 5% in the security software maker. Starboard CEO Jeff Smith, he is expected to outline the fund's thesis at an activist investing conference tomorrow. The company has lost nearly two-thirds of its market value since its peak back in 2020 when the pandemic spiked cloud computing demand. Uh, John, this is a stock that was worth a market cap of more than $35 billion now. What, $12 billion and change? Yeah, that's not unusual to yeah. have a big fall from, from those kinds of levels. It's hard to find an enterprise software stock, a growth stock, that hasn't. What, what I think is interesting here is this idea of a floor under some of these stocks because private money moves into them mm -hmm. uh, in, in some significant way, whether it's private equity trying to take a company out whether it's an activist investor saying, oh, we see some value here. CFO has stepped aside. They had a couple of um, misses in terms of uh, uh, annualized recurring revenue and guidance in the summer. Uh, so the stock is beaten down, but maybe too much. And to your point, I mean, a lot of the names that we've been talking about that have been garnering activist attention or buyout attention has sort of fit this profile around the 10 billion or less mark. Um, recently good quarter, but that valuation coming down so much from its peak. And, you know, got a lot of customers, got a yeah. track record. There's some value perhaps to be had there. And now let's turn to hardware. It's getting a lot of attention as investors weigh a potentially weak holiday season. Our next guest Warning, PC and consumer electronics demand is going to remain soft for at least a few more quarters, but he's still bullish on Apple ahead of earnings next week. Joining us now, City Managing Director Jim Suva. Jim, welcome. 
Why bullish given that, I mean, sure, Apple's been holding up operationally better than others, but its stock has also been holding up better than others. And if we get signals of weak demand or a little bit more inventory than they would like, won't that hit the stock? Well, what we think actually is the cash flow, one word or term that you did not mention is the cash flows Apple is so strong. Now, what's different about Apple versus, say, a normal PC name is with PC companies, you're seeing children go back to school and they're in person and people bought PCs and laptops during COVID. Now they don't have a need for them and they don't break as much simply when you're going back to work and you're going back to school. But your iPhone, your AirPods, these different items, when they break, they're essential to life and they're being replaced. Yes, families and households have less disposable income, rents higher, fuels higher, food costs are higher, but we believe people will allocate to things that are essential. And we believe Apple products and compute products, specifically smartphones, is where it's at. And we actually think this holiday season will be just fine for Apple. But the concern in October with Halloween and things are scary, we don't think it's going to be as scary as what investors are fearful for. Okay, three things that concern me. Maybe you can assuage these concerns. Um, strong dollar, China, Europe. Why is Apple going to be okay with all three of those? Well, the first one, nobody's immune for it, the strong dollar. Any company that sells internationally, no one is immune to it. So I got to admit to you, that's a challenge. The other thing about China, remember, we've talked many years, my friend, about Apple diversifying to places like India, Vietnam, where they don't want all their operational risk held up in one country whether it be political reasons, whether it be COVID reasons, shipping reasons, they want to be diversified. And so Apple is now looking at putting more and more manufacturing in other locations. We think that continues. We do not see this as government security issues, like with national security. And so that way we actually kind of set the, the, the your uh, second and third items kind of aside a little bit to say, they're not as big as concerns as what we think because they're not selling into you know, uh, the NSA, the CIA, the national intelligence, these are more consumer product devices. And also importantly, remember, Apple indirectly hires thousands and thousands of workers in China. And many of those workers have good employment and good skill sets that are driving the China economy stronger. And so, but we do agree that U.S. dollar FX is a challenge, but the China situation, we think they're going to navigate through it just fine. Are you talking navigate in terms of the supply chain? What about Chinese consumption, Jim? I mean, the economy, COVID zero is still a policy there. We have Xi Jinping's big meeting this week. What about, you know, that demand when Apple makes up such a huge proportion of revenue for Apple? So, Deirdre, that's a very smart observation. And I was focused on the supply chain. When we talk over about demand, I got to tell you and be honest, the China zero COVID policy has been a challenge for Apple the stores get closed, the supply chain slows down. But the stores closing is a very real headwind for Apple. People like to shop. People like to go into an Apple store where they tell you, hey, your friends and your family are beautiful. You need to spend more on more memory of your iPhone. And you walk out of the store spending more than what you thought and feeling better about that decision. However, when we look forward with the hope and anticipation that society gets past COVID, we see China turning into a positive, and Apple still did gain share in China. 
So we actually view that as something that's kind of backward looking and we're more forward looking, hoping that COVID and the zero policy becomes something in the past and we all move forward to a more fruitful society in the future. All right, Jim Suva, thank you. Great to see you. Coming up this week, results from Netflix, Tesla, Snap, IBM and a lot more just around the corner. We'll talk about what to expect on this busier week of earnings season in a moment. Don't go away. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Good day, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's what's happening right now. A strong earnings report from Bank of America is driving the stock higher this morning. The company's third quarter profit and revenue topped analysts' expectations as higher interest rates boosted net interest revenue. As the Federal Reserve raises rates, the lender is generating more profit from its core activities of taking in deposits and making loans. The U.K.'s new finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, reversed course today, scrapping almost all of Prime Minister Liz Truss's controversial tax cut plans. Hunt also scaled back Truss's energy package designed to subsidize consumer and business energy bills for two years. And the markets just cheered, which sent the pound soaring against the dollar and yields on U.K. government bonds falling sharply. Shares of Roblox are surging this morning after the company said it had nearly 58 million daily active users in September. That's up 23% from the same month last year, but still lower than the number of daily users on the platform in August. Why? Roblox said engagement in September fell because kids who play the game had to go back to school. And parents everywhere, Deirdre, (laughs) cheered, getting some attention. Back to the (laughs) family dinner table. There you go. Uh, Kadessa, thank you. Check out the NASDAQ. It's now up more than 3%. This is really a ripping rally to start the week here. Um, It did dip below that 3%, but uh, near session highs. Now, we get Netflix earning tomorrow's, of course. Uh, Snap and Tesla later this week. All three have been hit hard by the year's tech route. Joining us now, New Street Advisors, founder and CNBC contributor Delano Sapporo. Delano, great to see you. Um, I've got Bob Bassani in my head saying the evidence so far suggests a contraction, not a collapse. What do you think? Is that's what's driving the markets right now? Sort of a relief that this earnings season may not be as bad as feared. Yeah, it's great to see you, Deja. I think there's two two sides of it. Yes, that we may not be as bad as feared, but there's also the fact that we've revised lower a lot of the expectations, especially if you look at, you know, on the tech side, everything has kind of been revised lower. Estimates have been revised lower. I do think, you know, we could see something like this off the back of, you know, what happened with Bank of America, where there's a pop because it was better than expected. On tech, on the tech side, We may not see that, but we have to look a little bit further out to estimates in 2023 and see how the management is looking at outlook from that point. And that will give a tell on how the market's feeling now, because if earnings are coming down, then we still are a little bit pricey. We'll be still pricey, obviously, on a valuation standpoint, um, and we have to compress a little bit. But if earnings are, you know, the outlook is strong, then I could see, you know, the market cheering that. But it'd be very, very curious to see on how management is looking out Mm -hmm. forward to 2023. Right. Guidance is going to be key. And while this quarter may be better than expected, we've seen with the likes of Micron and FedEx how quickly things can change and how quickly demand can slow. So what do investors have to be careful of, look for within the comments from management this quarter, looking ahead to early 2023? 
Yes, I think the obviously we know you know this is outside of the macro level what the Fed is probably going to maybe potentially do a pause in 2023. So having to look at what management's saying as far as demand, I think that's the big thing right now because demand if demand is staying, we still have cost that's very sticky. If demand is weakening, then we would see you know potentially lower um, you know revaluation for a lot of these tech a lot of these tech companies. But if they're seeing demand still staying strong, if they're seeing supply chain not having any issues on the supply chain side, then we then tech would have a you know potential mini rally that that would be able to sustain. But um, that's the playbook for investors right now is looking for, further out on what management's saying as far as those items. It's interesting. I wonder, you know, we're getting some continued uh, Delano robust metrics when it comes to, say, travel. Some of the TSA throughput today, you got to go back to February 2020 to see as many travelers traveling on a yeah. Sunday. Uh, but I wonder if you think that's going to extend to things like e-commerce. I mean, we're going to be paying a lot more attention to holiday spending trends. 100%. And, you know, if you look at e-commerce, if you look at eyeballs, if you look at content, um, take Netflix, for example, you know, they've lost subscribers, obviously, in, in this past year. And, and the big thing for them is to focus on how they're obviously how they're going to add back the revenue. And the one thing they're doing is that obviously the ad tier, which would be potentially strong for them. So, so I think all of, you know, what management's focus on is consumer demand and seeing if consumers feel comfortable with the current inflation prices, with current inflation right now to pay prices that they've been paying, right? And that's the big issue for, for all companies across the sector. Delano, guidance is important, but it's unclear, isn't it? I mean, is there, it, it seems like we're at a point where fewer companies than normal are confident in exactly to what extent the consumer is gonna show up in Q4, what's gonna happen with the overall inventory situation. So while they might say something about 23, I mean, what they say in January is gonna carry more weight than what they say in October or November, right? Yeah, and that's a good example of that is Snap. Snap is a company that has not been giving guidance. They didn't give guidance last quarter. And they were saying the sentiments that you echoed, that there was just not a clear picture for advertising spend, not a good clear picture. Uh, obviously, they have increased competition from companies like TikTok. So I, I think it would still be important from a valuation standpoint to look at you know, what company is saying in 2023 that may shift uh, the outlook may shift in January, uh, but it's important to get engaged now because if we're sitting at a Ford P um, on the NASDAQ of 20, 20x times roughly, um, if that's going to compress a little bit uh, based on earnings, then one, that could make it a little bit more attractive for long-term investors if they believe that we are going to dip. But, you know, we'd have to be able to sustain a little bit of a, a potential fall in, in stock prices in the short term. Now, that said, Delano, I'm wondering which of the names reporting this week you think is going to give us some of the best data. I'm particularly interested in IBM because consumer demand not so important there, but it's got so many large long-term enterprise and government customers that we should be able to get a sense of what's happening there. Yes, yes, I think we would get a sense. I'm particularly following what Netflix says as well as Tesla. Um, I think they'll give us a you know a fair good on Tesla side. It is fair good. A good look at their production, how they're able to get, you know, production is standing up and as well as demand. On the Netflix side, I'm just curious to see if, you know, subscriber numbers are withholding internationally. That'll be a big thing. The earnings has been revised lower, about 36% by estimates. Um, and I think, you know, a big sign on the consumer to see if subscribers are coming back, if people believe in the ads here when that's released. That's going to be a big focus, I believe. Yeah, and we're going to get those numbers soon enough. Delano, thanks for being with us. Talk to you Thank soon. You now, Bitcoin... The price of it been cut in half this year, but Wall Street is still diving in. More on a new program from MasterCard this morning, what it means for the banks next.
Stay with us. Despite falling crypto prices, or maybe because of it, Wall Street is still diving into consumer trading. Kate Rooney joins us now with the latest. And Kate, this is MasterCard this time, one of the middlemen that crypto was supposed to disrupt getting deeper into the space. Yeah, absolutely, Dee. There is a little bit of irony here with MasterCard and Visa getting into the space. And they have gotten into crypto, but it's mostly been through debit cards and through payments. This morning, though, MasterCard announcing a program that lets banks quickly offer crypto trading to their clients. It's through an API. And the payments giant here will act as what they call a bridge between Paxos. That company is the one PayPal uses to offer similar services and the banks. The MasterCard program will help with regulatory compliance and security, which are some of the main reasons banks have largely avoided crypto so far. And the company's chief digital officer telling me that despite Bitcoin losing about half of its value this year, they still see demand for buying crypto, but through their traditional banks. There's a lot of consumers out there that are really interested in this, interested in and intrigued by crypto, but would be feel a lot more confident if those services were offered by their financial institutions. Actually, about 60% of the consumer says, gee, if my financial institution would offer me the ability to buy crypto assets, to buy NFTs, I would much rather do that uh, because it's a little scary to some people still. MasterCard says a number of banks have already signed up but declined to say which ones. And if Wall Street does widely embrace this partnership model, it may mean more competition for crypto exchanges like Coinbase, which have lost about 75 percent. Coinbase, at least, has lost 75 percent of its value since January. Higher today, though, more than 10 percent, guys. So, Kate, what I'm hearing is, again, this is layer upon layer. They're going to be looking at regulatory compliance and security. This is exactly the problem the crypto was supposed to solve. What do sort of the crypto natives, the evangelists say about this kind of partnership? And, you know, by putting so many layers into this, does it kind of defeat the purpose? In a lot of ways, it's sort of a catch-22. You're right, Dee, that um, this industry and this technology was really meant to disrupt Visa and MasterCard and the middlemen, the red takers, if you will, um, the idea that settlements and transactions could happen without any sort of intermediary. I asked MasterCard about that. They said they haven't seen that type of pushback. On, on the industry side, though, it is sort of a catch-22. You look at making something like this mainstream, and that's been MasterCard's argument here. If you're going to take this industry mainstream and put it in the, ha- the hands of millions, if not billions of people, you're going to need to work with the traditional systems and the payment rails and the on and off ramps to traditional finance. So they've said, hey, partner with us. We'll help you guys make this mainstream. And the chief digital officer there, Jorn Lambert, saying essentially, it's not mainstream yet. And if you want to get there, hey, guys, you're going to have to partner with us. And it's sort of this deal that they're making. But I'm sure there's some more crypto evangelists that would say this is really not what we had in mind. Yeah, because, I mean, blockchain was supposed to take care of that and and you didn't need all these various parties. In this, there's no commitment on MasterCard's part to actually hold crypto assets, right? They're just making money when other people want to buy them. And frankly, you know, if consumers want to buy something, somebody's going to sell it to them and, and, and take a cut. Absolutely. That's been the MasterCard stance here. They're saying if this is what we see from our polling, the consumers still want. They're not necessarily taking a stance on the viability of this asset class long term, but they say it's probably accretive to revenue in the long term. If people want to do this and want to spend this, they want to be one of the rent takers and want to be the middlemen here. And Paxos is the crypto exchange that a lot of these companies, PayPal, I mentioned, has also worked with. They're going to be doing more of the custody side. And these guys are taking on more liability, too, for MasterCard. You've really got to be careful that if you're the one making sure 
uh, companies and banks are following anti-money laundering standards and some of the compliance issues that are so complicated and different depending on what regulatory structure and what country you're in. MasterCard taking on some liability, but they say they're ready to do it. Yeah, pretty fascinating. Uh, Bank of New York Mellon last week, MasterCard this week, Kate. Uh, it's getting a lot more plots thickening, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, Rooney, thanks. Uh, meantime, Cloudflare is uh, 75% off the highs. Wells says it may finally be time to buy. We'll talk about why after the break. Back in a moment. Instacart slashing its internal valuation for the third time in less than a year, according to reports. In 2021, it was worth $39 billion, now just $13 billion. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Public gig peers have seen valuations cut by as much as 70%. There you see Lyft and DoorDash by that much. Private market valuations, they do lag, but Instacart has been getting ready to go public since last year. So we will see, John, if this latest haircut helps the company better align with public markets when and if it does go, because if is a question in these markets. Reality gradually setting in in both public and private markets. Now let's get a gut check on Cloudflare. Wells upgrading the name to overweight this morning. Price target to 65 bucks a share, with shares down 65%. Since January, the firm calls it an attractive entry point. Bullish on the company's broad platform, saying it saves customers money and consolidation and could benefit from tech's belt tightening going forward. Shares up double digits this morning. Yeah, don't go away. China's talent pool could see some cuts. As part of the administration's new semiconductor regulations, U.S. citizens cannot support Chinese advanced chip development without a license. The journal estimates at least 43 senior executives at 16 publicly listed Chinese companies could be affected, including several C-suite level employees. Companies already suspending workers include equipment makers like KLA, LAM, and ASML, as well as some China-based firms like Nauer and Piotech. It's not stopping Needham from adding Taiwan Semi to their conviction list this morning, though, expecting double-digit growth next year as wafer shipments rebound. That analyst is going to join us uh, tomorrow. Pretty interesting, John. A lot of discussion today, you know, about China and the underinvestment they've made in their middle class. It's going to be hard to see where they source some of that top tech talent in the years ahead. Yeah, I mean, in the near term, it definitely seems positive for TSMC in that, uh, hey, you're going to continue to need chips from Taiwan. China's not able to sp spin up its development. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you got to wonder the, what the next shoe to drop is. How does China respond to this in a tightening global economy? And there's still, you know, raging ambition to be able to do this within country. I, you're talking that key idea of retaliation. When are we going to see that? We haven't seen it so far, but I think that's what everyone's trying to figure out. If we see it, where, how, so that'll be a big question for the chip space. Quick programming note as we had to break, we are just over a week away from CNBC's first ever top startups for the enterprise rankings. The top companies powering digital transformation, attracting strategic investments and drawing acquisition interest, at least according to our Tech Executive Council. Find out more at cnbc.com slash TEC. We're back in just a moment. One more thing before we go, we are less than 24 hours away from the Adobe Max Creativity Conference. I will be live on site in LA discussing the business with CEO Shantanu Narayan. Shares of Adobe down nearly 50% this year, like so much of tech, but it's been a month since it announced that $20 billion acquisition, planned acquisition of Figma. That hurt shares, uh, D, because people think that Adobe is overpaying. 
and so we get to hear a little bit more of the strategic rationale now. Well, also because I think a lot of folks think that Adobe is maybe coming at this from a position of weakness, something they had to do versus wanted to do. I know Which, you're going to yes. disagree with me. It's, it's, it's laughable. No disrespect, of course, to Canva, to Figma. Adobe, Carl, is a huge <laughs> enterprise software company that's had a lot of success. They, you know, you got to be paranoid, but you're not like scared of Canva. No, I think it's going to be fascinating to hear, you know, obviously the markets voted one way, but I imagine he's going to try to explain how he's taking mm -hmm. a much longer view. And maybe they, they didn't have a choice but to start to get aggressive about some of the rivals that otherwise, John, would have been creeping up on them like a, like a frog in the water. Yes, there's creeping like a frog. But if you're an alligator, there's a certain level of concern. I mean, Adobe's had an amazing track record, but doesn't mean the competitive landscape isn't changing. But I like how you put it, Carl, maybe off offensively. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's the, the week's going to get a lot busier with some of the big names printing beginning tomorrow. We'll get to Goldman in the AM. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.